the following is an interview conducted on a different day with Don Shapiro, uh, another acquaintance of Arthur Siegel's from Detroit prior to World War II. And this will continue on the other track of this tape. Through bad planning, so I'll keep an eye on that. And then when I flip it over, we can go for 90 minutes on the other side. Oh yeah, right. Just, just in case we get carried away. So let me, let me just leave it open so I can see it. Well, well you know, Harry <coughs> worked with Art at uh, in Chicago. Yeah. At the Chicago, well, I the guess it was called the Chicago School of Design then, and uh, he gave you a lot of insights on Arthur, and. Uh, Let's see, who was the other instructor there? Well, Aaron Siskin was Aaron the other Siskin, one later you on. Talk to him. <clears throat> well, what I'm really um, interested in, in the sense that, uh, I mean, because Callahan and Siskin are very much in the limelight and there's been a lot of discussion about that period, I'm right. really interested in uh, the Detroit period. Oh, I see. You know, because um, I'm beginning to feel that there was a particularly significant kind of a little knot of people and energy going on there in Detroit there was. around the Photo Guild. Right. And um, I even have with me an old, an old cover of a Photo Guild uh, thing with a list of all the people who were, who were all the presidents through that period of time. Uh, my little memory jog for you. Yeah, well the way it started out, there was a miniature camera club in Detroit. Uh-huh. Okay. <coughs> then about the time that Isidore Berger became president, Mm -hmm. In 41-42, the name was changed to Photographic Guild of Detroit. And the event that brought this about, and I guess it was kind of a, a sort of an elitist group up mm -hmm. to that point, a not very large uh, group. And uh, I don't know who was the moving uh, force behind this, but... Uh, Oh, yeah, this one. And I'm looking for a photograph here if I can find it. Uh -huh. In the fall of 41, the uh, club got together and uh, here we are. Have you seen this photograph? No, no. Okay. This is really the beginning. Uh, this is the last, or one of the last issues of the uh, bulletin when it was still known as the Miniature Camera. This is September 41. September yeah. 41, okay, and that's about the time I joined. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess the membership was up quite a bit. And uh, I really have no way of knowing what the membership was before mm -hmm. this. But it got a great deal of publicity. All the members chipped in, uh, let's see now, what was it? $10. And I think we had about, at that time, and possibly due to this thing about bringing Ansel Adams to Detroit, mm -hmm. we raised somewhere between a thousand and two thousand dollars. Okay, and they called Adams and asked him for that amount would he come to Detroit and give a ten-day seminar mm -hmm. on photography. Well, you know Ansel. I guess you've talked to him. I've met he Ansel. He says, "Well, you know, I'm going to New York anyway, so I can just stop off on my way there." <laughs> and uh, this is one of the group shots taken at one of the field trips. Wow. Now, there's Ansel right there. And uh, let me see if I can point out some of the other people. 
Um, well, there's me half getting. With, with the hat on here? With the hat on. And uh, let's see. Is, is this hard? No? No. No. That's, was that Izzy Burger? No. Hmm. There's Charmettes. I haven't looked at There's Harry Callahan. Oh, the tie-on up here in the Right group. there. And there's Todd Webb right next to him. Okay, just for... For reference, I'm going to just describe where these are here because Todd Webb is right under this uh, tripod. Right. On the right-hand side, and right. Harry Callahan's to his right. Right. Yeah. Now let me see if I can find Art. I don't know if he was there. You know, Art is kind of an ego-ridden type of a person. Mm -hmm. And there he is. Oh yeah, sort of right under the camera there. And during this whole ten days. Mm -hmm. He tried valiantly to upstage Adams. <laughs> it was so funny. And once at Cranbrook, where he's giving an indoor uh, talk on the uses of indirect light and natural light, and how this could also be used for portraiture and so forth. Mm -hmm. And of course, Adams' strong point is not portraiture. Right. But anyway, he had a floodlight going, and he took a large sheet of white paper. This is Adams now. Right. And he said, you can do wonderful things by just bouncing this light off the sheet of white paper. Which is very true. Sure. I do it all the time. Right. And Siegel got up and he said, that's no way to make a portrait. Let me show you how to make a portrait, he says. Yeah. And, uh, well, I, I'm perhaps getting off the subject. Well, no, this is interesting. But at any rate, so Siegel grabs a spotlight and a backlight and a fill light and makes a conventional portrait. He said, now, he said, you go ahead, he said to Adams, you develop your film and I'll develop my film, we'll see who's made the better portrait. Mm -hmm. Now isn't that a hell of a note? <laughs> you know, Never uh, lacked for nerve. No, in <laughs> fact, we had um, Charles Eames up here one uh, week to give a talk, and we had a little dinner beforehand, and somehow the subject of Siegel came up, and Eames says, oh, you know Siegel? I said, yes, I do. Well, he says, there's a man with chutzpah. Yeah. <laughs> one other little thing. And, uh, you know, you've got to hear the whole story about this right. guy because he has several sides. Oh, at least. <laughs> and uh, uh, during the first war years, there was an exhibit, a traveling exhibit called the Image of Freedom. You familiar with that? Yeah, Arthur had the right of assembly picture, I think, in that, did he not? Right, yeah. right, okay. And uh, did he have the right of assembly picture in that? I don't know. Hmm. That may have been the motivation, because he gave the gallery talk. And it was on Woodward Avenue in Detroit, and of course a lot of the faithful attended, including... Oh wait, myself. the show was where? At the Detroit Institute of Art? No, it was at some gallery on Woodward Avenue. It wasn't at the Institute of hmm. Art. I can't remember exactly where it was. At any rate, you know, in those days, photography wasn't as... Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> ...as important a medium, wasn't considered as important a medium as it is today. So Art started his gallery talking, he had a package under his arm, which sort of looked suspicious. <laughs> and he introduced the show, told what it was all about and so forth, and then he said, and I don't agree, he said, with the thrust of this show. He said, I want to show you what they should have done. And he proceeded to unwrap And he unwraps his package, puts up about six pictures of his, <laughs> and then talks about what he would have done if uh, he were running the show. Anyway, okay. That's great. So let's get back to the history part of it. I came into the picture. Let's see. This is. Uh, well, let me let me yeah, uh, let okay. me do this. Let me let's go back and talk just about you a little bit and give me some background on this. Um, like, were you born in Detroit? Oh yes, yes. And what what was your birthday? Just for reference here. Uh, May the third, nineteen oh nine. 
Okay, so you were older than Arthur. Uh, three or four years, I guess. Yeah. And uh, I was an amateur photographer, where Arthur was one of our respected professionals. Yeah. Of course, we all looked up to him. And Arthur was a great teacher. And this also fed his ego. And he, he had little groups at his home and uh, little seminars at which he reigned. And uh, the students all gathered around him and sat on the floor and properly adored him and so forth. Did you begin photography like in high school? Uh, no. Whereabouts did you go to high school in Detroit? <clears throat> uh, Central High Central? School. Yeah. That's where Arthur went, I guess. I didn't know Arthur before. And uh, I first ran into Arthur as buying some supplies at the uh, Detroit Canberra shop. Okay, now let me place this a little bit in time. You would have graduated from high school in... 26. 26? Right. And then did you go to college or did you get a job right away? or what you... I went to the University of Michigan. And, uh, and you finished the course there? Yeah, I got my bachelor's and my master's there. Got my master's in English language and literature. Did you go right through for the two degrees? Uh, no, I took two years out. So you would have finished in 30, the first degree? First degree in 30, the second degree in 34. So then between 30 and 32, you were, what, working in the Detroit area or something? Yeah, like that? right, various jobs. Not being very successful, this being the depths of the Depression. Right, 32 being the real rock bottom. Oh, yeah. Was this like journalistic jobs or has this been, what was your, is your degree in journalism? Uh, no, my degree was in, yeah, I had a minor in journalism and, uh, but my master's was in English language and literature and uh, I think when I was a bachelor, I think when I received my bachelor's, I'd taken a great deal of work in the Department of Psychology in advertising. And the first thing I did upon leaving school was to try to find placement in advertising. Mm -hmm. And I worked for a short time at an agency in Detroit. I did some freelancing. I also uh, wrote speculative articles which I submitted to the local newspapers without too much luck. Were you doing photography then at this no, time? No, I wasn't doing photography. Had really started. I knew absolutely nothing about it. Okay. And uh, I also did uh, quite a bit of publicity work, freelance publicity work. Uh, but it was sort of a uh, touch and go situation and I didn't feel I was getting anywhere and I thought I'd like to get a graduate degree and go into teaching. And you were able to do that, so I'm able oh, yes. to return to college? Well, uh, my family was pretty well situated. My father was dead, but we had a small inheritance, and we didn't have too much trouble getting by. Mm -hmm. So I went back to the University of Michigan, and I got my master's degree. And then uh, for the next couple of years, uh, I taught at uh, Wayne University, experimentally started community colleges. And I taught English and journalism at the Wayne University Community Colleges. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, this didn't seem to be leading anywhere because um, it was a spin-off from the university proper. It didn't have too much of a standing. And a lot of the funding came from the government because uh, it was a way of getting people into something uh, perhaps a little more useful. Uh, 
than just standing in unemployment lines. And so uh, a friend of mine, well, you don't want a whole life history, do you? Well, I'm interested in how you got into this because this oh. is the this will bring us up to this period with a real sense of where you're coming from and which will be oh, helpful. I see. Okay. Well, one of my publicity clients was the uh, Detroit Polo Club. Mm -hmm. And I constantly was in touch with these people, and I'd been a horseman for a long time. And I played and I practiced with the team and had a great deal of fun. Until one day in the scrimmage, <clears throat> I went down with my horse in a goal post, and I cracked my sacrum. And uh, um, it took me about two or three months to get over this, and by this time the indoor season had arrived. And I was practicing at the uh, Detroit Fairgrounds in the indoor season, and of course the ground was frozen in unheated Coliseum. And I got into another bash and broke my right hand. And uh, there I was, unable to write, unable to run a typewriter, and with my fingers in traction. And I wandered into the Detroit uh, camera shop just looking for something to do. Now this would be around 35, 36 in that period of time? Uh, while you were yes. Teaching, or during the time you were teaching in these colleges? Right, right. <clears throat> and uh, I picked up an Argus camera. Mm -hmm. It would cost $15. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I took it out and I started taking pictures of my friends and my family. And uh, this was great fun, but I soon found that the Argus really wasn't all that great a camera. So I went back and I traded it in for a Foth Derby. A what? A Foth Derby. How, how would you spell that? F-O-T-H-D-E-R-B-Y. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, you know, this is just an amateur staggering around in the dark. Uh -huh. Is this a roll film camera still? It's a roll, 35 millimeter camera <clears throat> with a focal plane shutter mm -hmm. and a fairly fast lens. Well, I went through several cameras, of course, just as people now do, staggering sure. around, trying to decide you know, what was the best, but it was still just a toy for me. And I finally worked myself up to a speed graphic. And during the summers, um, I was a counselor at a boys' camp, belonged to a friend of mine. And I got in a lot of uh, student time, you might say, using the speed graphic, running a motion picture camp at the boys' camp. And I look back now, I'm aghast at how little I knew about photography. But it was great fun, and I was trying, and uh, people weren't all that critical about the photographs. Mm -hmm. And I never really considered it as a way to make a living. Uh, I gave up the teaching. I was a friend of mine who was an executive with an oil company in Detroit. said, come on, let's use your advertising and sales promotion background and come in and work for me as my assistant. And he was vice president of this oil company which I did until World War II came along. Well, actually, I moved to another oil company, which was the address of one that I, uh, that's on the masthead of the bulletin. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I hope my voice lasts. I'm just getting over this flu, and it's really rough. And, uh... <clears throat> so it was then that you got involved with the camera club in this period, when you started at the oil company? Yes. Would have been, what, 36? That would have been, uh, 40... 40 and 41, let's see, 40, 41, 41, 42, yeah, fall of 41. Just right around the Ansel Adams visit it was yeah, your right, earliest contact. Right, right. I just got married. I came back from California in the fall of 41, 
and I heard about this big Ansel Adams thing, and that's when I joined the club. Mm -hmm. And shortly afterwards, of course, um, they tapped me for this job of getting the bulletin out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so that um, you would have met you would have met Arthur then that right. time. That time. In fact, I was in the camera shop, and uh, I said I'd been invited to. Uh, participate in this little group of Art Siegels, and the guy said, well, there's Art Siegel over there looking over some film holders. Would you like to go over and talk to him? Uh -huh. So I did, and we chatted, and I joined this little group, and that's where I met several of the people. Now this is uh, his private class? His private had... little class. Right? And, and who else do you recall who was in this? Did you meet Joe Monroe at that time? Um, Joe was in and out of it. Joe at times, what Art would do is when he had a job and it required more help, uh, more to do than he could handle himself. He would uh, ask people to help him, and Joe Monroe, I think, helped Art for a while. Did he mention this? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. That's where I met Joe, yeah. and that's where I met Mark Christensen. And Mark, I guess, worked in the darkroom for Arthur too, uh, right. on, when there was big print jobs right. of some kind. Right. Right. <clears throat> um, but the main the main activity was the uh, photographic guild, and it was a powerful outfit. You know, it was a great deal of good programming if you look through some of these issues and see some of the guests we had. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we got Shershell along from Chicago. We got Tom Maloney, who was the editor of uh, American, uh, of uh, US, camera. U.S. Camera. Now, what would someone like Maloney uh, do when he came, for example? Well, my memory sort of fails me, but if you will uh, look at, let's see now. And Tom Maloney will speak at the February 16th meeting. Okay, so we ought to have. Oh, here it is. Here tells what he tells history of the U.S. camera, describes today's trends, mm -hmm. and it talks about gives some details about what he did. And here's Clee Clark, who's head of the illustration studio at General Motors. Mm -hmm. Now my tour with the uh, with the photographic guild in Detroit was very short, as was. Uh, that and many of the other members. Uh, when his burger was president, uh, well, let, let's say I met Harry Callahan and Todd Webb mm -hmm. at the first uh, at the first seminar uh, at the first uh, field trip under Ansel Adams. Uh huh. Okay, and we compared pictures and we compared cameras and went through all the horseshit you know that mm -hmm. photographers do when they get together, mm -hmm. and uh, we formed kind of a neat relationship. And we sort of operated as a group within a group, and I've got a couple of photographs here, uh, taken at my house in Detroit. And here's Joe, and there's Art, and there's Todd Webb, and there's Harry Callahan, and there's his burger, and there's Charmatz, who later became president of the club. Mm -hmm. I can't remember his name. He's the guy standing. In yeah, he's an outsider. He didn't belong to the group. And this is... Uh, my sister's brother-in-law, so you know he just happened to be there. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, what did you think of? I mean, what was like Todd Webb doing at this time? What was your impression of him? Obviously, you were reasonably sociable. Ah, uh, let me see. Todd and Harry both worked at Chrysler, if I remember correctly. I know Harry worked at Chrysler Motors. Mm -hmm. And uh, pretty soon, we found our interests were sort of uh, comparable. And we were all sort of developing, and this little group became more important to us than uh, mm -hmm. than the photographic guild. In fact, uh, 
I think by uh, about May or June of that year, of 42? 42, that we had all resigned from the guild. We had our own little group. I don't know if Joe ever mentioned it to you. We called ourselves the Maroons. The Maroons? Spelled M-O-R-O-N-S. M-O-R-O-N-S? Right. Is that awful? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's pretty terrible. The cross between maroon and moron. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, well, it all started when, uh, when Isidore Berger, sort of as a nominating committee of one, made Charmatz the next president of the guild. Mm-hmm. And Charmatz was really a shit. Let's just <laughs> let's just end it right there. He was a horse's ass. <laughs> yeah. And none of us liked him, and we all resigned. Mm. And we formed our own little group, as now, I say, the Maroons. This now, was, but was he part of this group? Didn't you say this was uh, him here? Well, this was before the group uh, officially uh-huh. uh, uh, resigned. You, this is one of my photos. So this picture would have been... Sometime. This would have been while everybody was still feeling pretty... This was before... This was while Berger was still president, mm-hmm. and Charmatz just, uh, he's very political. I don't know how he happened to get into that gathering, but he did. Is this, is this photo you have taken the same night, same, probably? Same night, yeah. And who's the, who is this one? Is this your wife? No, or that's, uh, that's this fellow's wife. Yeah, the brother-in-law or yeah, right. sister? This is yeah. your sister or something? No, no, she's just, she's not related. Oh, I see. Now, here he was in the accounting department, I think, at Chrysler. Mm-hmm. I believe so, yes. And Todd, I have the feeling that he worked at Chrysler, too, but I'm not sure. At any rate, it was really funny. I guess you heard about... Uh, well, at any rate, I don't know if you can find any of the issues of the bulletin that were published after we left. Well, I have written to six or eight people uh, who were presidents at the time and old members who uh, I could find some reference to, and I have gotten one or two... Sort of. Oops. Excuse me. Sure. Back up there. <clears throat> anyway, I, I would. You know, I'm very interested in copies of that publication. It's relatively uh, well, ephemeral. Can, <laughs> you can take these with you and, and, and Xerox them if you like. Yeah, that would and very send much them back like to me. Okay. Now let's see. Would it be possible for me to borrow these and make copies of them and return sure, them to you? Sure. Sure. Because these are really. Uh, yeah, those are really historic. They really are. There. Yeah. This, I think, shows more of the guys and better. Yeah. But you can take them I'll both. I'll take them both and just for reference, yeah. So, our stay at the Guild, and this means... Uh, Siegel was kind of... He was a very political type of person. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean interested in who was in control, that kind of oh, thing? Oh, yeah, that kind of thing. He's very political, and he's very manipulative. And... Uh, Harry tells me, uh, well, last time I saw Harry is when my son was married back east and Harry was at the wedding. Mm-hmm. And uh, God, Harry's memories of his relationship with Arthur are just frightening. Mm. And uh, this had a great deal to do with uh, his leaving there. And uh, I guess Siskin couldn't, Siskind or Siskin, Siskin, yeah. Siskin couldn't get along with him either. Uh, and it's too bad because Arthur was really very, very talented. What What was Arthur uh, when you took the course with him, for example? Yeah. What kinds of things was he doing uh, in this course? What was he asking uh, students or whatever people to do? Well, first of all, he's getting them to print on glossy paper, which nobody ever heard of then. Mm-hmm. What was the standard? I mean, how would you characterize the, the typical kind of thing at that point in time? Uh, what What everybody else was doing? Oh, camera club uh, competition. 
pictures of dogs, pictures of people, uh, pictures of landscapes. And Arthur was really into photography. I mean, he was one of the first who really did what you might call, I hate to use the word candid, but very live treatment of industrial subjects. He'd go into a plant. He'd show the environment, show the people working, show the interrelation between the people and the environment and the working conditions. Mm -hmm. And he had a great eye for the romance of developing industry. He did a great book for Strand Steel, who made what you might call partly prefabricated building and that the elements were prefab of steel. Mm -hmm. And the progress pictures that he did of those were really beautiful. This is a Detroit based This is in Detroit. Strand? Strand Steel. Hmm. Made some of his early, his early reputation, you know, industrial photography was based largely on that. I don't know if you've seen the things he did for Bell and Howell in Chicago. Later, much later. Yeah, the much later. 65 or something. Yeah, I have right. seen that record. Yeah, yeah, right. Of course, by 65, there were a lot of people doing that sort of thing. Right. Too, but, yeah. but he was one of the first. He was one of the best. That's um, a male, I guess. Um, but art was in the vanguard. Art saw these things developing and then, to a great extent, developed them himself. He's one of the first to recognize what Harry Callahan was doing. And he was very knowledgeable in the field of photography. He, his knowledge of photographic bibliography exceeded anybody's at the time. He was already uh, a real avid book collector. And he was indeed. And he had a great historical sense of the history of photography. And I think he knew that he was an important factor in developing a, a certain type of photography which fit into a certain niche mm -hmm. in the historical development. What kinds of things um, did he do in the, in the little classes he would run over? This will last better. Ah. You know, also this machine, I can run. This machine has four speeds. I can actually run. I can oh, run. Oh, are you running one and seven eighths? One and seven eighths now, oh, and right. I can run. Now this will go ninety minutes now on this side. Oh, yeah. Just that I wanted to use that little piece, which I don't, uh, shouldn't bother with, but, um, and it's an excellent fidelity machine. It's really a, right. Um, the cassette, just the cassette, for something that you really want to keep for years and years and years. I feel like the cassette, you know, is going to be. Where's this all be transcribed, right? Pardon me. This will all be transcribed. Right, and to go back and forth on the cassette is yeah. the worst thing you can do for oh, it, too. Oh, yeah, that's you know. murder. So yeah. the reels, uh, we use a big timbre deck that yeah. has a foot pedal uh -huh. Uh -huh. to do the transcribing, and that works out Good. pretty well. Anyway, you were saying about this class. Uh, oh, yeah, first, first, qu first question. question. Asked, what is gamma? And he loved to ask a question that nobody could answer. And he'd go around and ask each person individually. He asked for volunteers and so forth. To each one, he, with great delight, he'd say, no. And then, when everybody completely uh, uh, had given all their explanations and to him, you know, faulty ones, then he told you what gamma was. So, unfortunately, the first person he asked what gamma was happened to be myself. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, it's the relationship, if you want to put it on a graph, but the actual contrast in the scene to the to the recorded contrast on the film. So a gamma of 0.8 means 
that you had 80% of the contrast mm -hmm. on the film that you had in the original scene. No, he said. Then he went around. And then finally he explained what gamma was. Well, my point is that he would turn down the correct answer mm -hmm. because nobody knew better than the teacher. <laughs> and that was his entire attitude. And it's very unfortunate because Siegel could have been one of the great figures in photography in his time and later if he hadn't been crippled by his personality. Mm -hmm. And he really was crippled. Yeah, I, I guess that Arthur had um, some real major crisis uh, in around 1950, and uh, personally, I mean, just in terms of this. And um, I think perhaps after that point was maybe a little less this way, but still this characterizes him from, uh, uh, you ask a lot of his uh, more recent students, the type of thing you're talking about. Um, given this problem, and given that this seems to characterize Arthur very well, and, and so on. What was the nature of the, uh, the positive part of what, he obviously still gave a lot of people a lot of energy, asked a lot of interesting questions. Um, what kinds of things uh, do you think he sort of set in motion, uh, in yourself or in others, as far as you can recall? Well, one of the things we did on an informal basis, and of course, as you can see from those photographs taken at my place, he would come in and out of the group, and we'd see him singly, and we'd see him in groups, and we'd stop by his house, and he would stop by my house. And uh, I always managed to maintain, a, everybody maintained a, a connection, however tenuous, with Arthur. Because he had impeccable taste and judgment. Now, if you showed Ansel Adams a photograph, Ansel Adams wears blinders. If it's in his area, he can discuss it. If it's not, he, frankly, you know, and he'll say so, he just doesn't know anything about it. And Ansel takes refuge in technique. And he repeats himself over and over and over again about the inner event and the external event, you know, to, and the zone system. And you've, There's so much there, but you can't get it out of Ansel. And so you get fed up with it. But you could go to Siegel and you could hand him a photograph. And he could talk about it for 15 or 20 minutes. And he'd talk about everything. You know, he'd pick up a picture like this. And he'd start out by saying, there's an interesting relationship going on here, you know. He said, and from there, you know, he jumped to another point. And he'd say, oh yeah, and by the way, Shapiro, he says, you know, you're getting nice print quality. You know, and then he'd blow that off, then he'd go back into the picture again. He'd get into personalities, he'd get into the sociology of the thing. And all in all, it was the richest response, you see. If he, were, if he didn't happen to be in a teacher-pupil relationship, or rather he'd forget maybe that he wasn't in a teacher-pupil relationship. He had tremendous resources of knowledge and taste. And more than anything else, he could place himself historically in photography. And he could place you, too. He'd tell you, you know, that maybe you were operating in 1920 mm -hmm. instead of in 1945, or whatever the time happened to be. But somehow or other, in almost every contact with Siegel, 
something unpleasant in a personal relationship would come up. Hmm. It was very, very hard to deal with it. He had his weak spots, too. And of course, Harry and I and Todd, we'd always kept a very close relationship, of course, until Harry went back, uh, until Harry went to Chicago and I went to California. And uh, interestingly enough, I was just opening a new studio in 1950. You happened to mention, no, no, it was before then. It was the fall of 48. When Arthur called me from Chicago, called me in California. And he said, hey, Don, how would you like to come to work here at the Chicago School of Design? I said, well, first place, you know, I, uh, I don't understand why you're asking me that. In the second place, I'm just building a new studio here in Redwood City. Well, he said, as though he hadn't heard any of this, you'll have to talk to um, Maholi Nudja, and uh, who was still there, I guess, at that now, time. Now, wait, this, this is the fall. Maholi died in in '46, in Thanksgiving of '46. Could it have been? Oh, I guess it wasn't. Could Maholi it have been Chermayev? Chermayev, yeah. You'll have to, of course, give a resume to Chemayev and so on and so forth. I said, Arthur, maybe he didn't hear me. I said, it's very flattering, of course. I don't feel I'm qualified. Uh, but otherwise, it's impossible. And I told him why. And he visited me out here two or three times when I had my studio in Redwood. In fact, he visited me just before that time and got very interested in a research project up at the Stanford Library involving MyBridge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard something about that. And uh, he visited me in this house later, and I, I, I bought this house in 1955. And letters would pass back and forth. He'd write to Harry, and Harry would tell me what he said, and I'd write to Harry, and <laughs> Harry would tell Art, and so on and so forth. Harry respected Art, and Harry was very tolerant of everyone. Todd Webb hated his guts. Wouldn't have anything to do with him. You know, said he was a complete ship. He didn't want to have anything to do with him. But Todd was always kind of bitter because, uh, you know, he hadn't achieved the success that Harry had. So, you know, you just have to take that as a kind of a personal evaluation. But Arthur really got us all started. Well, I'll take that back a little bit. Ansel Adams got us all started. And for a while, all we were doing was taking Ansel Adams' pictures. But Arthur, who had his own career and his own viewpoint, his own aesthetic and his own critique established before Adams ever got there, just kept on his own way. And having Arthur as a balance against this eternal landscape photography was probably an extremely healthy thing for us. But now when people ask me about my background in photography and I tell them, tell them that Ansel Adams got me started, they say, oh God, you know, what a great thing way back in 1941 to have that kind of a beginning. I said, shit, he set me back 10 years. <laughs> and he did. And it was Arthur that kept it from being 20, huh? Right, exactly. Exactly. And we all developed our own style, although, as I pointed out to Joe Monroe once, and Joe Monroe pointed this out to someone who was 
who was doing a thing on Harry Callahan, and when I saw it in print, I just couldn't believe it. I saw my own quote, and I think it's in the foreword to this Callahan book. I said, Callahan emerged from the ocean full, full blown, just like in Greek mythology. He's never changed. Yeah, that's what you always He never say. really developed. And uh, you can almost say that of Arthur Siegel. But the rest of us, you know, being cut of a different kind of cloth, I guess it took us a while. What kind of work was Todd Webb doing uh, that you recall? And what kind of photographs was he making at this time? Well, one of the things that Todd and I and Harry would do, we'd go out on a landscape hunt. We'd go out on a Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And we photographed landscapes until they came out of our ears. And then, and this had to do with his burger. His burger was one of the first... Oh, and Art Siegel used to do this too. We used to kid him. We called him an Ashcan photographer. Because he used to go down into the ghettos and the Negro section of Detroit and photograph. And his burger did some of the greatest Negro photographs, you know, that you've ever seen. And that was his thing. And so Todd and I and Harry used to do this too, but we did it in a different way. Harry would photograph the old buildings. Todd would photograph the people, and so would I. I wish I could lay my hands on it, because I know I still have some of those photographs. Oh, as far as the landscape is concerned, mm -hmm. are you familiar with Harry Callahan's book that was published here in California? The Almaloco Gallery one, Santa yeah. Barbara, yeah. It's yeah, right. It's a very beautiful suitcase book. Yeah, yeah. right. Crank us back up. Um, well, uh, these are really fantastic. I was just looking through it. So really, uh, we had a lot of fun. That was the main thing. Yeah, it looks like it. This is kind of and uh, oh, I started to tell you about these pictures. Do you remember one picture that Harry took of a single leaf, and all the rest of it was snow? Just single dead leaf right in the middle. Of the yeah, picture. I think I know what you're sure. Okay, well, we were all out together on that session. It's kind of interesting. Uh -huh. Because here's my version of the same picture. That's the same leaf? No, it's not the same leaf. Same this is, idea. Well, I mean, we're photographing the same area. This is what I chose to photograph. Uh -huh. <laughs> this is uh, ice. And these dead leaves are frozen in the ice. See, some of them are below the ice. And this one is sticking up. And this, these two are sticking up. Uh -huh. So, and when we go out in the landscapes, I don't know what the hell. Um, I guess I'm a lot more romantic than, uh, mm. you know, than Harry is. And this little trilogy here, all of these were photographed on our uh, little jaunts. Uh, so these all date from 42 or so? Uh, yeah, these date from around 42. Uh -huh. yeah, I should. Don't, don't have a camera to make a record snap, but uh, that's, that's good to see. Well, how... How much longer did this go on? Were you drafted at some point in here? Or? No, I have to tell you about Harry. Okay. Uh, along about this point, um, yes, I was drafted. Went down to the, uh, for my physical, and uh, you know, I'm practically blind. It's very, it's, <laughs> it's good to be a blind photographer. We have a blind photographer in San Francisco. She's legally blind. She takes pictures, and she took some pictures for, uh, for uh, the Levi Strauss Agency, you know, who makes um, 
um, the jeans. Yeah. And she's kind of a hippie, and she would go down there, there in the hate ashbury and so forth, and all the jigaboos and the garbage cans and so on. I got some very wild pictures of these uh, <clears throat> uh, characters, you know, uh, doing their thing, mm -hmm. and uh, diddly bopping along the street. But she never got anything in focus because her <laughs> eyes were uh, too much. Yeah. yeah she take, I'll bring this in here. Okay. She take a picture of some super fly in a big hat, you know, uh -huh. going along like this and so on. They liked their pictures. They were really great. They were very wise. Nobody else was doing anything like that. But they kind of had to stop using her because technically they were so bad. Uh -huh. And I was talking to Ken Best. Well, you can pour that. Good bread. Isn't that good? Mm -hmm. So, uh, where the hell was I? And why did I get off onto that tangent? Uh, you're saying about your, you yourself have an eye problem or. Oh, yeah, I got down the draft place and it was crazy that, you know. You're 2200 in your right eye. He said, can't use guys like you. And so I got what they call a, I don't know, a 2F or something, suitable only for limited service. And the guy said to me, look, he said, they're not calling up guys like you, but if you don't get into a, uh, into a water industry, you're going to be cleaning latrines. And I said, well, I don't think that's the kind of work I want to do. Of course, that wasn't actually correct. You know, I'd probably been writing training manuals or something so, yeah, like but that. Anyway. But while we were talking about this, Lily had said to me, we, I had just been married. Lily is your wife? Yeah. yeah. I had just been married, and uh, that's about right now, I think. Okay. Um, she said, hey, I saw an ad. She said for... Uh, for photographic printers, she said, for General Motors. Well, you know, Joe was saying that everybody worked, everybody in this group worked there once. I got, I got them all their jobs because I was the first guy to go to work there. Ah. So uh, I said, oh, Christ, you know, they never hire me. Well, she said, I think it's worth a chance and you just love your photography. And you had never worked in photography or thought about working in photography. No, time. no. So I went down there. One thing, I'm a hell of a printmaker. You know, to this day, of course, everybody's printed, printing on uh, resin-coated paper now, making these goddamn gray prints, and they stink. Amen. And the word on the San Francisco Peninsula, if you want a black and white job, you know, call Don Shapiro, because it's a lost art, and he's one of the few guys who are still practicing it. 
And that's no joke. It's going to get to be like a, a real specialty thing to be yeah. black and white. Yeah, away. absolutely. It's coming that way. Huh. And uh, I don't know if you looked at any of those industrial shots over Not closely, there. But, yeah. but, you know, that's the kind of thing. And uh, uh, I, I love black and white because it's so much more abstract. And there's certain subjects, you know, that are so much better in black and white than they are in color. So I went down there and I had the good sense to take a portfolio of prints with me. And of course I often did what Ansel Adams talked about, gold toning a black and white print until it just turned slightly purple. You know, and I took one print down there that I cut in half. One half been toned, one hadn't been toned. And when I was interviewed, I looked at it and he said, Jesus, he said, uh, an old guy named Rudy Vallon mm -hmm. said, uh, Boy, he said, we need guys like you around here. And, you know, I was really shook up. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, oh, God, he said, we have guys in there printing in the lab that, oh, he said, you know, you have a feeling for quality, he said. So he offered me a job, and I was absolutely flabbergasted. I went to work there in about two or three days. And, of course, I started in the print room. Mm -hmm. And uh, along about this time, uh, um, was Harvey, had Harvey Crows been brought up at all in the, uh... Yeah, we talked about him some. I, yeah, right. I well, was gonna, I was, I should mention to you, see, part of another angle of my personal interest in this is that, um, I attended Cranbert School, and ah. Harvey, Harvey made my senior picture. Oh, is Harvey still there? Harvey's retired now and living in Northern Michigan, and Harrison, I think is the name of town. I haven't yet contacted him, but he's another person I want to talk to about all this. I don't remember about Harvey. I may have talked to him about General Motors, and that's the reason he may have come up there, but he came to work there. And Harry was drafted and uh, went down for his physical, but Harry was sure he was going in the Army. I'm talking about Callahan now. So he had this little Plymouth Coupe, beautiful little car, you know, he went down, he sold that for virtually nothing. Harry was always kind of a schnook when it came to practical affairs, you know. He relied so much on Eleanor. And incidentally, my wife and Eleanor, you know, were very close. And Harry and I and uh, Eleanor and Lillian, uh, we really enjoyed each other, you know, as people. And Harry's, uh, you know, Harry hadn't really started to hit the bottle in the way he did later. And he's visited me here a couple of times, and I visited him in Providence. And, God, I don't know, you know, Harry just goes through hell, I guess, in his private life. You know, I guess he's got a lot better under control the last couple of years now. Well, I, w I would hope so. Because, I mean, to the point yeah. where, well, of course, it's very well known. It's even in the new, maybe you've seen the new Museum of Modern Art catalog of his work from the show that was a year ago that's circulating. And, and in the foreword, Sarkowski, you know, writing a piece, even, even talks about it and quotes some letters between he and Todd Webb discussing the problem. And apparently he's... Somehow, man, I don't know what the problem is yeah. specifically, but he's well. It's got funny. It's funny, you know. Last time he visited us here with with Eleanor and his daughter. By the way, his daughter just got married not too long ago. I got the wedding announcement stuck up in my studio there. And he'd say, "Hey, uh, you know," he'd get to talking like I'd say, "God, you know, I better drink some coffee." My voice is going. He said, "Need beer?" And I'd say, "Sure," you know. So I'd open a couple of bottles of beer, and and they said, "Gee, you know, I'd like another beer." I said, well, okay, Harry, help yourself. And pretty soon Harry was going back and forth. Then he'd come out, you know, with a stricken look on his face, and he said, hey, Don, your beer's all gone. <laughs> I said, well, uh, is there some place around here we can get some more beer? 
And then we'd have to run over to the corner, get another couple of six-packs of beer. Then pretty soon he wasn't talking sense anymore. You know, he was just gone. And boy, you know, to me, it was, you know, here he'd come, he was on his way to Mexico or on his way back or something, he stopped in here. And this was a great visit, a great get-together, you know, and here he was blotting himself out. But at any rate, uh, he gets down to the, uh, to the induction center and they tell him he's got an ulcer. And here he was all set to go, you know, he sold his car, he'd, uh, well, I don't think he canceled his lease on his apartment. And, uh, Eleanor was sure he was leaving. And Todd, I think, was already in, uh, I think Todd... Wasn't he in the Signal Corps? No, Todd was in the, uh, it wasn't the Merchant Marine. What is it, that supporting arm for the Navy? Well, like the CBs? Or the the... C... Yeah, the CBs, I guess. And they sent him down to New Zealand, where he took some marvelous pictures of the primitives, the Maori, the Maoris, the warriors. He has one marvelous picture of this great Maori chief, you know, dressed in the tribal regalia, a marvelous physique, big fuzzy hair. And right in the middle of, of this hairdo, he has his medallion. He cut it out from, us, from a package of Lucky Strike cigarettes. The medallion <laughs> said Lucky Strike. <laughs> a real live cigar store Indian. <laughs> exactly. So, anyhow, um, at what time? What this would have been during forty-two, middle of forty-two, when like when you went down for your physical summer? Yeah, I guess so. That would be about then. Uh, so I went to work at General Motors Photographic, like in uh, the summer of no, the fall of forty-two. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then Harry came after this. And then, oh yeah, so Harry says, what am I going to do? I quit my job. He said, I hated the job anyway. What am I going to do? So I went to Ed Thorne, who was head of uh, our section in, in, in photographic. I said, hey, here's this fantastic guy, you know, who makes the most beautiful prints you ever saw in your life. And if you really want to, I don't know if I did Harry a service or not, but he wanted a job. And so uh, he hired Harry. And then Joe got in the same kind of a fix. Joe was head of photography at Cranbrook. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I don't know exactly what happened at Cranbrook. Uh, but anyway, uh, they separated. Joe left Cranbrook. And uh, I said to Joe, well, I think you can go to work at General Motors Photographic if you want. And Joe was a little pissed because he wanted to come on as a photographer. Well, the way General Motors Photographic worked, it was a definite routine you had to go through. You had to work in a print room at least for a year. Then you went to something else, like I went to the Color Lab. And the last year I was there, they discovered on shuffling my cards, I had a literary background. I was in the motion picture division, writing scripts and directing commercial movies. And But anyway, no matter who you were, unless you know, you'd establish yourself with someone else, you came mm -hmm. in and into the wet wash. And old Joe was a little pissed that that was the way he had to start. Because Joe was ahead of me photographically. And uh, I wasn't really a photographer at all. And But anyway, that's the way Joe started, too. And then Harvey Curls went on to Cranbrook. Did he not after Joe left? I believe. How the hell did that work? I think Harvey, I don't know why. I think Joe told me yesterday and I've forgotten already. Yeah, Harvey went out there. But Harvey took the job after I guess Joe he did. left General Motors. I didn't understand that. 
Could Harvey Crows have been at General Motors when I came to work there? I don't know. You'd have to ask it. Didn't Harvey work for the Department of Parks or something? Yeah, Parks and Boulevards in Detroit before that. But, be, but he, he would have been out of that, right? Yeah, right. I'll have to ask Harvey when he pieces yeah. together. Anyway, Harvey went out there. Joe was too much for Cranbrook. And Harvey was perfect. And he was there a long time. Yeah, Harvey was perfect. Harvey tried to hire me while I was working at General Motors. Harvey was funny. Harvey's a very insecure person. Oh, yeah? Oh, terribly insecure. Hmm. And uh, he said, uh, I came out there, and I didn't like working at General Motors. The pay wasn't so great. It was really hard work. It was a long commute. And he said, Don, how would you come out here? We got a lot of work. It was a wonderful place. And, and I want to introduce you to so-and-so who's in our press. And we print the stuff that I photograph. And, you can follow the quality all the way through, and it was really great. I said, well, gee, Harvey, it really sounds, it really sounds attractive, and uh, I'd sure like to consider it. And he said, well, there's only one thing, Don. He said, you know, Cranbrook has invested a, a lot of money in me, he said, and uh, sort of I represent Cranbrook photographically. So anything you do here, he said, will have to go out under my name. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> you never worked for him, then? No. Nope. <laughs> But uh, it's true, though, really. I mean, in the sense that uh, uh, even today, I mean, after time, it really was true. It might have not been true when he said it, but today, you know, if you pick up any any publication from Cranbrook, from any one of the institutions, even though there'll be a current photograph of some activity, there's always a photograph in it somewhere that's a Harvey Cross because he built up such a huge file. Yeah. Of, of right. Material, you know. Harvey was a nice guy, though. Uh, I remember he had a standard greeting. He loved old jokes. Coming to General Motors, he was always a dandy dresser. You know, he's heavy. Yeah, apparently he's really big. This but time. he was a dandy, you know, and he had his clothes tailor-made. I know where he got the money. He wore a Homburg hat. You know, it was very impressive. He'd come in and he'd say, ask me how's business. And I'd say, how's business? And he'd say, don't ask. And he did that every morning. <laughs> every morning? Every morning. It was a standing joke around the place. You know, finally there'd be six guys around and say, ask me how's business. We don't say, how's business, you know, and he'd say, don't ask. <laughs> it was a routine. We had to do things like that or we'd have killed ourselves working there. Ah, <laughs> uh, so let me see now. Well, Arthur left Detroit, to get back to Arthur a little bit. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out about time. when he left Detroit. I know, I have that information somewhere else, but... Um, the real question is, did you have any kind of contact with him after he left Detroit, uh, particularly? Sporadically. Uh, what, you'd visit Chicago occasionally? or something No, like never visited Chicago. Hmm. But shortly after I moved out here, I think this was in about 47, 48, Arthur came out to the West Coast. He had a girlfriend with him. He's always a great womanizer. Barbara, this would have been then. Yes? No? Maybe this was, was this after his first marriage or during? He had this, a short... was be, this was before he was ever married, I think. Well, I think he finally married this gal he was out with. Yeah, because he married a woman named Barbara, <laughs> who he met in 46 and 47, somewhere around there. Yeah, that's what they married. It a few years. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Arthur had health problems then. He was telling me, he said, Arthur was always tired, you know. You'd invite him up and, oh, God, he'd just sort of pass out in the chair and said, oh, God, yeah, I... Oh, I just got to go home. I'm so exhausted and so on. And he was telling me on this first trip, it turned out he was allergic to wheat. Oh, right. There's some, you know. Yeah. 
He said, I can tell you something. He said, there's no filler in Jewish hot dogs, kosher hot dogs, he says, because I can tell. I can take a bite, he said, out of somebody's hot dog, and I can take, and I know immediately, he says, if there's any filler in it. And he said, kosher hot dogs and no filler. He says, very interesting. And Art was this way, you know, he had a very analytical mind. He knew a little bit about something about everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, he came out here, and uh, he... Uh, he went down to see Weston, of course, pay his respects and meet him and took a portfolio of prints this big to show to Weston. Well, you're making gestures a foot thick here. Yeah, right. In other words, he showed Weston his pictures. <laughs> okay, everybody did it, I guess. And I said, God, you know, I've never met Weston, I said, and I guess he isn't going to be around very long. Well, he says, we're going to make this wide circle tour and then we're going to come back through the Carmel Valley. And I said, hey, I'll tell you what you do. And I was busy scrambling trying to make a living because I came out here with a little stake. I had paid for my, I had sold my house in Detroit, moved out here, bought a house, went into a studio, and uh, shared a studio with another photographer. And I just couldn't take the time away for a swing like that. I said, tell you what you do, give me a call when you leave San Luis Obispo or someplace like that and I'll meet you down there in the Carmel Valley. And Arthur was the kind of a guy who never wanted to share anything with anybody, you know. So, of course, you know, he never called me. But then he came back to the studio and he got into this Mybridge thing and he said uh, that he was the only person that had ever been uh, allowed to take these books out of the rare book room and he could only have them for 24 hours and he wanted copies made of So I went out and we got some film and I must have photographed, I must have shot up a hundred pieces of 5 by 7 film. 5 by 7 panatomic caps in the studio, copying all the stuff. The big, right? the big plates out of the yeah. animal locomotion or that kind of a thing, something like that? Mostly his landscapes and his photographs oh. of uh, San Francisco. Oh. oh, okay. Yeah, the locomotion stuff was pretty much in the public domain. Oh, okay, yeah. This was all stuff that really hadn't been published. His photographs of uh, Knob Hill and the Crocker residence and so on and so forth, and they're fantastic. Yeah, that's they're all contacts. They're about 11 by 14 gold tone contact threads. Yeah, you ever see them? Yeah, they're beautiful. Oh, they're fantastic. So I copied all this stuff, and this was about the time that uh, I was going into this new studio, and I made all the copies, and of course, Art was always great at sloughing off his work on other people, <laughs> and he wanted me to develop and print all this stuff. Well, I realized after he left that I just wasn't going to be able to do it, so I wrote him a nice note and I mailed him all the negatives, which I hadn't even had time to develop. And the story comes back that, you know, I'm a shitheel for life because I didn't do this for him. And uh, <laughs> then the next time I saw him, he came out west. He was on a trip, I think, for uh, some annual report. And he was, no, he was on the trip for... The Chicago Advertising Special Edition of Fortune Magazine. You know, they run those things in the front. Advertisement, but it's all really editorial. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and he was out here to photograph FMC, Food Machinery Corporation, down San Jose. And so he came out here. Let me see, when the devil was that? That was about uh, 56 or 57, maybe. Yeah, I have a complete list of all those Fortune jobs somewhere. I can place yeah. it pretty exactly. And uh, so he came in and... Uh, about the first thing he said, Don, he said, how much money are you making? <laughs> well, I said, you know, not very much, but I gave him the dollars and cents figures. And he says, geez, I haven't been able to make much more than that either. He said, well, how much do you keep out of that? And I told him, he said, yeah, he said, it's really a hell of a note, isn't it? And here he was doing all this stuff, 
And I remember I had bought this house, which is now worth about $125,000. I bought this house for $19,000 with, I think, $2,500 down. Mm -hmm. The payments were $147 a month. And I was... Uh, Have you added to it, or was it like this when you bought it? Well, it was like this when I bought it. <laughs> it was a hell of a deal. Well, I finished off the garage in a yeah. studio, and I built a dark room, put in air conditioning, a few things like that. But yeah, essentially, basically. you know, I landscaped the whole goddamn place myself, planted every tree, every stone, everything. And, uh, let me see, I'm trying to figure out how much money I was making. I think at that time I said I was netting about... Uh, between eleven and thirteen thousand a year, he said. Jesus, Don. He says I. Sometimes I make that much, and sometimes I don't. And then he said, You know, I had this this student of mine. You know, we were all his students. Right. I had this student of mine. He said he's up in Milwaukee. He's making about seventy-five thousand a year. He's got this big studio. He says he's not all that great a photographer. See, Arthur at that time never understood. that a lot of guys can make great pictures, but he was becoming a businessman and he, and his personality, or his way of dealing with people, his lack of understanding mm -hmm. uh, was what kept him from growing in a financial sense because Arthur always had, just like Ansel Adams, his head was an IBM machine. He rang up every sale in his head while he was talking to you. But he never really made it. You know, the rest of us, you know, none of us got rich, but you know, Joe lives nicely and I live nicely and I put two boys through college and I'm no great shakes. You know, I do a pretty good job, but I know about what the hell I am. Right, well, I mean, it seems to me from what I've seen that 